it is a real hodgepodge of people and groups. Vivek Ramaswamy, the RNC, the NAACP, 179 members of Congress, three former attorneys general, three current secretaries of state, multiple civil war historians, a group of Capitol Police officers, and Roseanne Barr, or at least someone named Roseanne Barr, who purports to live in the same state where the real Roseanne Barr actually lives. Now, what do all of these people and organizations have in common? Well, they have all signed on to amicus briefs, formally telling the Supreme Court their opinion on the question of whether Donald Trump can be removed from the ballot in the state of California, Colorado, for violating the 14th Amendment. Now, just as a refresher, the third section of the 14th Amendment disqualifies former government officials from holding office if they engage in insurrection or gave aid or comfort to those who did. The deadline for weighing in on this case for filing those amicus briefs was today. And now that case is set to be heard next week. Oral arguments begin on February 8th, which is a week from tomorrow. And the eventual ruling here will have implications far beyond the state of Colorado. That case will determine not just whether Colorado is allowed to strike Donald Trump from its ballot, but whether other states could follow Colorado's suit. So a big hot potato has landed on the lap of those nine justices, and it is not the only one. There is another case where that conservative Supreme Court could single-handedly decide Trump's viability as a candidate in the 2024 election. Today, Bloomberg and Morning Consult are out with new polling. In seven swing states, 23% of Republicans say they would be unwilling to support Donald Trump for president if he is convicted in one of the criminal trials he is currently facing. You did not hear that incorrectly. 23% of Trump's own party would not vote for Trump in the swing states that will very likely decide this election. In Arizona and Georgia, in Pennsylvania and Michigan and North Carolina and Wisconsin and Nevada, Donald Trump would lose more than one in five voters in his own party. Now, I cannot underscore enough how much that statistic alone could cost him the election. But all of that is dependent on whether Donald Trump actually faces a criminal trial before the 2024 election. In the Fulton County election conspiracy case, D.A. Fonnie Willis has asked for an August trial date, but legal experts say that that's unlikely to hold. That case is complicated enough and has enough potential reasons for delay that it is likelier to be heard next year. We're going to get a little help breaking down why that is later on in this hour. Then in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case, legal experts also say that that case does not appear to be on track for a pre-election trial. Back in the fall, the judge in that case, Judge Aileen Cannon, revised the schedule for pretrial motions. Now, that has, in turn, pushed all of the deadlines a couple of months. So even though that case is technically still scheduled for May, legal experts believe Judge Cannon has effectively structured this thing in a way that will push the trial past the 2024 election. And today we have new reporting from Politico that very clearly suggests yet another one of Trump's criminal trials will be delayed by yet another group of judges. The ones on the Supreme Court. You may have figured that out purely by process of elimination, but points if you did not. The criminal case most legal experts believe likeliest to be heard before this November election 
is Jack Smith's federal election interference case. But for 50 days now, that case has been frozen. The judge in that case, Judge Tanya Chutkin, stayed the case. She effectively put it on hold while Trump's claim of a presidential immunity makes its way through the appeals process. Now, Trump has made clear that if he loses at the appellate level, he plans to appeal again to the Supreme Court. And Judge Chutkin has made clear that if Donald Trump does, in fact, appeal to the highest court in the land, she will keep this case frozen, unable to proceed until there is a decision from the Supreme Court. But it's been 50 days and we don't even have an appeals court ruling yet. And as Politico reports again today, the longer it takes for the appeals court to rule, the likelier the Supreme Court would punt the issue into the fall effectively ruling out a trial before the election. Can anything be done here? Joining me now are Michael Schmidt, New York Times investigative reporter, and our not-so-secret weapon, MSNBC legal analyst Lisa Rubin. Thank you guys both for being here. I mean, a little peek behind the curtain. Every night, Lisa, every night we say, is this the night? Is this the night that the appeals court will reach a decision in this immunity case? And, you know... Granted, the hearing was January 9th. So far, goose egg. Nothing. We've got nothing. My hands um, tired from refreshing, Alex. Yes, exactly. Apple R or whatever the PC version is. <laughs> um, what's happening here in your estimation? I can only have a guess. Yes. Let's estimate what's happening here. Yes. But we have a three-judge panel on the D.C. Circuit. My guess is that these three judges have a general agreement between them that Donald Trump should not be immune from federal prosecution in the federal election interference case. How they get there, on the other hand, is a different matter. In the ideal world, all three of them would like to be in total agreement. Mm -hmm. They'd like to issue an opinion that is per curiam, meaning not authored by any one of them, where all three of them get to sign on. But of course, there are many different paths to getting there. And one judge suggested during oral argument that what really matters to her is whether the allegations against Trump are ones that affect his duties Mm -hmm. or that affect him in a campaign capacity and suggested almost that you really had to parse the indictment. That would be the worst of all worlds because that could mean sending the case back to Judge Chetkin to determine which aspects of the indictment are worthy of immunity and which are not. And that could even further elongate the case beyond the appellate process. So I think behind the scenes, the two judges who would like to get there in a simpler, easier way, more akin to how Judge Chutkin ruled in her own ruling, Mm -hmm. are really putting some pressure on Judge Karen Henderson. She's the most senior of these judges to try and get on board and see if they can do something unanimously. Can I just follow up on that? Because Politico does talk about what the judges can do behind the scenes to pressure. If there's a holdout, can they like, how much can they needle her? And would they even needle her to come to a conclusion with whatever she's writing given now it's still the month of January, but in, in, you know, sort of in, in the judicial system, this is like still, we're still working at relatively expeditious speed. We are. I mean, oral argument in this matter was only January 9th. Typically, the way that appellate judges needle each other is very different from how you or I needle people in how our families. How I needle you. Or how you, not, I wasn't <laughs> going to say that, how, how we needle each other, right? What they do is they send drafts back and forth, and they're trying to see if they can agree to legal reasoning. It's a very um, 
legalistic dialogue, an intellectual argument, not a, could you please pick up your laundry right. for God's sake, Karen Henderson? <laughs> yeah. It's not how I would, it would it'd be how I needle Michael Schmidt. Um, <laughs> Michael, it seems to me on one hand, right, like there's a broad part of the American public that's, well, some part of the American public that's saying, wet TikTok, when are we going to get this? On the other hand, it feels like if there was some meaningful dissent here, Donald Trump would exploit that dissent to the ends of the earth and certainly within the bounds of the legal system. Do you think it's important, at least politically speaking, in terms of Trump's utility, the, the utility of this decision being used as a, a tool in Trump's arsenal that 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 everybody basically agree and come to a general conclusion? I think more important than that is the massive issue that there was a delay in the Justice Department investigation into Trump. Yeah. It's a huge deal. It didn't take uh, Liz Cheney two years, you know, to figure out that there was a criminal problem here. But for some reason, it took the Garland Justice Department a long period of time. We don't have the full story of why that happened. But they started at the bottom. And if Donald Trump does not go on trial before the election, a big reason for that will be because of that delay and because Garland moves so slowly. And that's a huge deal. Can I just interrupt you? Because we had Katie Benner, your colleague, talking about that very reason. And there is some reporting that suggests there was real concern inside the DOJ in the transition from Trump to Biden that the department was too hot. And to put it in layman's terms, they wanted to back away from, you know, prosecuting Donald Trump. And they effectively started with the foot soldiers at the bottom, the January 6th defendants. And only after the House January 6th committee had this sort of public spectacle detailing all the evidence that pointed to Trump, did they feel a sufficient amount of pressure to pursue this in a meaningful way? I mean, work me through how you think the Department of Justice is responding, can respond, might respond, given the reality that we're now looking at, which is maybe the earliest we get any closure. I, I don't is- think there's anything they can do. They're subject to this schedule that's outside of their hands. Yeah. They could control this on the front end. They could have moved more quickly. They could have they could have appointed a special counsel earlier, and that would have started the clock earlier. Once you start the clock, I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, you start to lose control. Yeah. And they have lost control. And now they are at the whims of these judges. And, you know, as you were saying in that Politico story, like, it's not really clear how they can move each other along, like what the schedule really is, how quickly will they move? You know, and if the Supreme Court steps in, then that won't happen until the potentially the fall. So it raises the prospect that and and I've said this before, but I think it's really important. You can engage in trying to overthrow an election and then you can avoid going on trial about that and you can run for re-election to win to essentially have that case dismissed. Right. Um, which feels like is what is unfolding right now. Um, Lisa, in terms of the Supreme Court, it's an open question when we're going to get this appellate court decision. We know that Trump's going to appeal this to the highest court in the land. Um, what would it take for the Supreme Court to take this up on an expedited basis? I mean, how unusual is that, in, in, given the way they've behaved on other items? I mean, Jack Smith tried to leapfrog the appellate court right. to begin with, and they were like, no thanks. Right, but it took Jack Smith 11 days between asking the Supreme Court 
for certiorari, meaning to review the lower court's decision, and asking for expedited briefing on that. It took them 11 days to say, no, we're not going to do that. So that's proof positive that when the Supreme Court wants to, it can move with all deliberate speed. In the ordinary course, this would move at a sloth's pace. An appellant has, or a petitioner at the Supreme Court, has 90 days after the entry of judgment at an appeals court to even ask for certiorari. Just, just to be clear, for so that means the, the, the appeals court could say, Donald Trump, you're not immune. You're not immune. And he has 90 days to take it to the Supreme Court. In the ordinary course. And then the person who opposes that review has another 30 days to oppose. And two weeks after that, and no sooner, it can be distributed to the justices to confer on whether to even grant review in the first place. So that illustrates to you how slowly this moves. On the other hand, the Supreme Court is proof positive when there's a will, there's a way. This is also the same court that reviewed Bush Bush v. Gore in four days between the Florida Supreme Court decision and its own written decision with oral arguments and briefing in between. Just four days. It also made a decision in the Nixon case that's often used as sort of the closest precursor to this, seven weeks from the district court opinion to the Supreme Court opinion. Again, with lots of briefing and argument in between. This Supreme Court is capable of moving. Whether it wants to is an entirely different Correct. You know, Donald Trump has had sort of two masterstrokes in this, it feels like, Michael. One is sort of making the basic basic prosecution of Trump and his inner inner circle appear to be a partisan witch hunt, right? That's apparently part of the reason Merrick Garland uh, sat on his hands, for lack of a better metaphor, in the early days of the Biden administration. The other thing he's done that's been remarkably effective is to suggest that expediting these trials, getting a verdict, whether guilty or innocent, is somehow partisan, right? Like that idea has really seeped into the groundwater here. And it sort of feels like even the judges are buying it. Like Eileen Cannon down in Florida really seems to be slow walking this. I mean, you wrote, I think, the definitive piece on Eileen Cannon and her experience as far as overseeing this case. And it feels like she's towing the Trump line on this. The problem that she has is when this all started and it all came out that he was under investigation for the documents, she made these rulings that um, legal experts and judges above her looked at and said made no sense related to whether the government, what the government could do with the evidence that they took from Donald Trump's from Mar-a-Lago. And out of all the judges that could have gotten the case, she now has the actual case. And she is someone, as we detailed, has extremely little experience, has a highly complicated case in front of her, um, has shown unusual leanings towards Trump and can very easily make sure that this can have this trial not happen until after the election. And is skillfully not saying explicitly, I'm going to push this, but it's kind of like death by a thousand cuts, right? There's just small incremental delays that seem reasonable. And and whether it's fair or not, in our system, judges, and I think legal folks would say this is not fair, get branded by the people who appoint them. So she's a Trump appointee. Now, does that mean that she's on the take for Donald Trump? Or does that just mean that the perception is there? Whatever it is, she has that perception amongst a lot of folks who are closely watching this. Yeah. 
Well, we are saying a lot. Karen Henderson, a George H.W. appointee, and Eileen Cannon, a Trump appointee forever, for whatever that is worth. My friends, Lisa Rubin and Michael Schmidt, thank you so much for your time and thoughts this evening. Coming up, Nikki Haley turns up the attacks on Trump and Biden and Barack Obama. More on that coming up. But first, new subpoenas to Fonnie Willis may require her to testify publicly about an alleged affair. What does that all mean for a conspiracy case against Donald Trump? That's next. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app. Hey, everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. There is some news out of Fulton County, Georgia today, where District Attorney Fonnie Willis, who has charged Donald Trump and 18 others in that sprawling election conspiracy case, where she has been subpoenaed. D.A. Willis may now have to testify publicly at a hearing next month over allegations that she was having an affair with prosecutor Nathan Wade and that Mr. Wade benefited financially from their relationship. The subpoenas were part of a new lawsuit filed by Mike Roman an alleged fake elector and Trump co-defendant who's trying to disqualify D.A. Willis from this case. Mr. Roman is now claiming D.A. Willis is intentionally withholding information ahead of the hearing, which Ms. Willis denies. Now, it's unclear if either Willis or Wade will testify. They could both seek to quash these subpoenas, but if they do testify, they will do so under oath and the hearing will be televised per Georgia law. Meanwhile, the judge in this case, Judge Scott McAfee, who is also overseeing Willis's election conspiracy case, has directed Ms. Willis to respond to the misconduct allegations by Friday. Now, these allegations are merely that, allegations. And as of right now, they do not change the facts of the actual case against Trump. But could they change its outcome? Joining me now is Anthony Michael Price, Assistant Professor of Law at Georgia State University. Anthony, it's great to see you. Thank you for making the time. I know we checked in with you when this case was kind of, or what should we call it, the situation was first unfolding down in Georgia. And there has since been more evidence produced, if you will, of the relationship between Mr. Wade and Ms. Willis. I wonder sort of what you think happens now in terms of next steps for Ms. Willis and where Judge McAfee may come down on this. Well, the first thing we'll have to see is whether or not the DA fights these subpoenas uh, to prevent her 
to prevent Special Prosecutor Wade and others from testifying in the evidentiary hearing that's that's scheduled for February 15th. So that's the first thing I'm looking for. In addition to seeing what the filing uh, contains um, that that's due on February 2nd, or at least before February 2nd. I, I think really, ultimately, as a legal matter, it's very unlikely that Judge McAfee will disqualify the office or will find that the prosecution is somehow tainted by this relationship if all the facts bear out as they seem to be bearing out. Um, there are two ba basic claims that are at issue here. One is a selective prosecution claim. In other words, the, the prosecution was only pursued um, and advanced because there was a profit to be had by the DA and by uh, Special Prosecutor Wade. And then there's this claim that there is a uh, larger conflict of interest, um, that there's a pecuniary gain to be had from the conviction of these defendants. I think that latter claim is really unlikely to, to manifest into anything um, in terms of a disqualification. The former one is, is also really unlikely to, to make, to, you know, I think to get Judge McAfee's attention because it's really unlikely for these defendants to show that special prosecutors, prosecutor Wade um, and his involvement in this case is really the driving force behind the prosecution. I, it's really hard to bring a selective prosecution claim. So I think ultimately they're both very likely to fail. But there is I mean, there are other efforts that the state, if not the courts, can pursue to sort of get D.A. Willis taken off this case. Is that right? I mean, I know that there are various commissions that have been established and disbanded and, you know, there are various levels of evolution. But it appears that there are Republicans in the state are, if not eager, interested in further examining ethics breaches in this case. And that could be problematic for D.A. Willis. Is that right? It sure could be. There's a lot of moving parts here. So there is a, a disciplinary body that was created last year um, for prosecutors that the General Assembly uh, couldn't really uh, have implemented because of a Georgia Supreme Court decision. That is being passed through the, the General Assembly again this session. That could be a source of, of a headache for the DA down the road. There's also a Senate committee hearing uh, or a committee that's been formed to investigate the Fulton County DA's office and this particular incident. Um, that could be potentially problematic. There will be subpoena power with that committee, um, but it's really an untested power in the state of Georgia and under, under the Georgia Constitution. So that could be dragged out for quite some time before any information is produced. There's also the potential for an impeachment uh, that I think uh, really would have no success of um, no, no success in, in the General Assembly should that be pursued. Um, but that could also be a potential headache for the DA if, if more damning evidence is unearthed. So, so there are those kinds of outside forces, which, which certainly, um, could create a headache, can create a problem for the DA. I think that, you know, we really have to separate these issues out into two buckets, right? One is the political and one is the legal. The legal one being, you know, does this derail the case in any significant way? That seems to be really unlikely to happen. But the political side of things, the optics of it, um, dealing with these kind of outside institutions looking in and, uh, you know, engaging in oversight, you know, that, that's something that I think that DA will really have to contend with and will be a, a major headache again, even if the ultimate legal questions before Judge McAfee are decided in their favor. Yeah, I mean, the headaches are one thing, but one would think that all the sort of swirl of perceived controversy here might undermine her ability to on, on the most basic sense here, get plea deals, right? I, th I think in December, um, Fonnie Willis said that there was a possibility that, you know, more of these co-defendants would be taking plea deals with the state. 
We haven't heard any plea deals announced, and I wonder if you would draw a line between the sort of allegations that are in the air now, the suggestion that maybe should be taken off or that the case has somehow been weakened, which is obviously the intention here from Michael Roman and his allies, and the inability of the DA's office, at least from the outside, to secure more plea deals from these defendants. It's a real mixed bag. So if I'm a if I was a defendant sitting in their shoes, um, on the one hand, this looks really good because it's creating um, right a, a dialogue that is completely removed from the merits of the case. Um, on the other hand, people have pretty short memories. Uh, juries in the voir dire process are meant to ferret out people who come in with prejudices. Uh, so so there's a real kind of mixed uh, risk there. Um, the other thing, too, is if the, if there was a disqualification, there might be the chance that this gets sent to a DA's office that has no interest in pursuing prosecution, prosecutions or that will make super favorable deals or it could go to a neighboring uh, office like in DeKalb County, which is very similar to Fulton County, um, where you have equally talented prosecutors and the bandwidth and the political will to do, uh, you know, to, to continue this investigation. So that's a real risk as well. Um, I, I don't know if it really ultimately will, will affect anybody's calculus, especially if they can get a particularly good deal. Um, I, I think really what we have to see is what happens with the, the case on, on uh, February 15th and the evidentiary hearing, because this may be, um, you know, much to do about nothing. There is certainly evidence that, again, is politically, um, you know, not ideal. It is certainly, you know, implicating potential ethical issues and the like. Um, but if it's not going to derail the case or remove the Fulton County District Attorney's Office from the case, um, you know, hedging hedging your 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 bets against a RICO charge um, with an unlikely <laughs> result, and you know, is something you probably don't want to do. Right, hedging your bets against hedging your bets against a RICO charge equals never a good idea. Anthony Michael Christ, thank you so much for your time and expertise on this matter. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, Nikki Haley today unveiled a new novel theory about who's to blame for the political division in this country. And here's a hint. It's not Donald Trump or Joe Biden. I'll give you the answer right after the break. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley has a new strategy. She is finally ready to attack Donald Trump as long as she can attack Joe Biden at the same time. The New York Times reports today in a new series titled Grumpy Old Men, 
The Haley campaign plans to start unveiling online videos, digital ads and voter emails that will underscore the ways in which Ms. Haley has argued that the two party frontrunners are alike. OK, set aside, set aside the fact for a moment that Nikki Haley is trying to attack her opponents for being old by referencing a movie from 30 years ago. Set that aside. Governor Haley's new strategy seems to be to draw comparisons between two people who, apart from their advanced ages, have almost nothing in common. In other words, Nikki Haley is literally alienating almost all voters on every side of the issue as if she has no idea which people she's supposed to be courting. And if you needed a clearer example of that, Nikki Haley sat down today for an interview with The Breakfast Club, which is one of America's most popular syndicated black talk radio shows. And on that show, Nikki Haley decided to blame America's division on the first black president. I think with Obama, that was, if you go back, that's when we really started to feel the division. That's when we, re- it, it was... A lot of that was because of white supremacists, though. Well, no, I think it was it was everything. Everything was exaggerated with the Obama administration. It became more about gender. It became more about race. It became more about separating Americans instead of bringing them together. Permit me for a second here. Nikki Haley says that during the Obama administration, everything became more and more about separating people by gender and race. It has been nearly eight years since Barack Obama was president, but it is worth remembering what Barack Obama actually did on the issues of gender and race. He passed the Lilly Ledbetter Act, which worked to close the gender pay gap. He became the first president in history to endorse marriage equality. He worked to ensure that health insurance covered birth control under the Affordable Care Act. When it came to race, President Obama started the My Brother's Keeper initiative to help young men of color overcome opportunity gaps. He used his position to speak for grieving communities, many of them communities of color, after the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church and after the killings of unarmed black teenagers like Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown. And all of that, according to Nikki Haley, was about dividing Americans. It became more about separating Americans instead of bringing them together. That was, it was, that was because of the right-wing media, though. Boy, they, were, they were scared to death of a black president. Look, I don't think everybody is at fault. I'm not saying that one person did this, but I'm saying under that administration, it really did cause some, you just felt, people felt like they were being put in camps. The Obama administration was dividing Americans by putting people in camps. Just take a second to remember, remember how Nikki Haley's actual primary opponent in this race, how he ran for president the first time around. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some I assume are good people. And Donald Trump is now running on an immigration plan that would literally put people into camps based on their immigration status. But it's all Obama's fault. Beyond the factual absurdity here, what is the goal of going on one of the most popular black radio programs in the country to disparage the man who won re-election in 2012 with 93 percent of the black vote? Who is this strategy for? And how long will Nikki Haley keep this up? 
We're going to talk about that and the state of the 2024 presidential race next. I've never kissed up to Trump. I've mm-hmm. always told him the hard truth. And, you know, now he said yesterday the stock market's great because people are excited about him being president. How many more times are you going to let him lie about things that aren't true and say, you know what, something's not quite right? And this also is about a general election. This is about who can win. He can't win moderates. He can't win independents. He can't win suburban women. He lost in 2018. He lost in 2020. He lost in 2022. How many more times do you have to lose before you say, you know what, maybe that's not the guy? Until now, Nikki Haley refused to go after Donald Trump in any meaningful way. But as the primary season heats up, it appears she is finally shifting gears from park into neutral. Joining me now is Charlie Sykes, editor at large at The Bulwark. Charlie, thank you. Is that too mean? I don't know. Everyone's like, here it is. It's the big Nikki Haley. The the arrows are out for Donald Trump. And it's like she's going after him for tariffs. Right. Like. I, I don't know. Do you think we're seeing the new Nikki Haley right now? Well, you know, but about every hour on the hour, I get a text from her saying, Charlie, it's Nikki. Have you heard the latest uh, thing that Donald Trump has done? He's lying about me. And then she tries to sell me a T-shirt, you know, based on, on uh, you know, his, his threat to to exile anybody from MAGA who contributes to her. And just when you think that maybe she's found the voice you get something like what we heard today. You know, yeah. Nikki Haley, you know, comes up to the ball, looks like she's going to kick it and and then pulls it away herself to mix the metaphor. But I mean, yeah. she's not the one we've been waiting for, because, you know, even though she's willing to say Donald Trump, you know, is a liar. Donald Trump is a loser. She is not willing to say the kinds of things that even that Chris Christie was saying, that he is just fundamentally un- unfit. You know, and, and I think that that whole dance where she's trying to say, yes, the country is divided because of Barack Obama shows you know, how hard it is for Republicans in this particular electorate to deal with the damage that Donald Trump has done. Yeah. They just cannot take him on and and place him in the context and say, look, we are in this moment because that guy came down the golden escalator and Republicans capitulated him over and over and over again. Well, it also seems to me that she's taking a page almost from Trump's playbook and trying to invoke the specter of Obama, right? Like Obama was the person that divided sure. the country. Like what? Don't even get into the division question if you're going to punt it to Obama, right? This is a tried and true mechanism from Donald Trump to foment fear in and around the the country's first black president. And it seems like she's adopting the same strategy here. Oh, very much, very much so. Look, I mean, what you're seeing is that the addiction to whataboutism, that if you're going to attack Trump, um, you you also have to make it very, very clear to Republican voters that you also oppose the Democrats. Now, right. I mean, I understand the political tactic here that you are running in a Republican primary. But, you know, as as you point out, the grumpy old man is, is not only tired, um, it doesn't really, you know, make any particular substantive point. But going back to Obama, you know, I, I think what she's trying to do is she says this is one of the the erogenous zones of the Republican electorate. And, you know, we can find something that we can all agree on. But again, you know, in the context of of this particular moment, when Donald Trump says or does something on a regular basis that reminds us 
how dangerous and anti-constitutional he is, a man who was impeached for trying to overthrow a free and fair election. And you're going and saying, yeah, he's not the cause of the division. It's this other guy that's been gone for eight years. This is the problem with Nikki Haley. She just can't bring it. Remember the hot mic? Alex, uh, the, the hot mic yes. incident with Chris Christie, where yes. he was caught the, the night he dropped out. And he said, you know what? Um, she's going to get smoked because she's just not up to it. Yeah. And I, I think you're seeing that demonstrated again. Well, and I, I think her inability to talk about race. I mean, she gets she she seems so disoriented and so marble mouthed whenever she's asked about she race. Um, I want to play. She was asked about the way in which Donald Trump has kind of tried to weaponize uh, her Indian name, Nimrata, and whether or not mm -hmm. that's racist. And this is what she had to say. Do you think Trump mocking your birth name was racist? I mean, I think we can let other people decide that. I think, that he, you know, you look mm -hmm. at it and you, it's kind of like the Tim Scott, you sleep with yourself. I mean, we'll let Donald Trump sleep with that all he wants. Oh, he don't care. He sleeps very good. I mean, she can't even defend herself and her heritage to say nothing about that, you know, heritage and identities of all other Americans of color who are maligned by Donald Trump. I found that just shocking. Well, I, I, I find it, you know, sadly not shocking because, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, we, we've we've seen how Republicans have become really gun shy in talking about race. You know, when she was asked, you know, as a former governor of South Carolina, when she was asked what was the cause of the Civil War and she was not able to, to uh, mention slavery. That was a reflection of the fact that she thinks that the Republican Party voters do not want to hear that kind of thing anymore, right. that they don't want to have racism called out anymore, which shows not only that she's that she's you know somewhat timid about this, but she has uh, a view of the Republican electorate that may not be completely inaccurate. But I guess here's the other point that, you know, is, is sort of revealing. She is not going to be elected president. She is not going to be Donald Trump. And at this point, she has to decide who does she want to be? Does she want to go down um, to defeat by being mealy mouth before she has to stand on the stage behind Donald Trump and endorse him? Or does she want to make a full throated statement of principle of who she is and what she thinks the Republican Party can be? And, you know, and from moment to moment, it feels like she's shifting, that she's like edging up to there and saying, I'm going to go out here with my integrity intact. And then she says, yeah, maybe not. Yeah, it's amazing to watch the sort of psychological push and pull or the ethical push and pull that's right. so clearly on display with her candidacy. Charlie Sykes, um, we still have 24 days to go, uh, theoretically, at least in the Nikki Haley candidacy. Please come back soon and talk to me more about it. I appreciate you. Any, any, anytime. Coming up this week in Congress, we got to witness something that is more rare than a solar eclipse. In fact, it has not happened in 148 years, and it is a not a good sign that it is happening now. We're going to talk with Brendan Buck about what it, what it means for Congress and the country and 2024. Coming up next. Last night, the Homeland Security Committee approved two articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas in a party-line vote of 18 to 15. Now, just to underscore how unusual all of this is, it has been more than a century since a member of the president's cabinet has been impeached. The last time was in 1876, when Secretary of War William Belknap was charged with criminally disregarding his duty and basely prostituting his high office to his lust for private gain. In other words, taking bribes. 
This time around, Republicans are moving to impeach Secretary Mayorkas for failing to uphold the law and breaching the public trust, which sounds very official, but is not actually a crime or misdemeanor. In fact, by all accounts, Secretary Mayorkas has been basically doing his job, a job that allows him to determine how and when to detain migrants, to decide which migrants to prioritize, and to use his authority to allow migrants to temporarily live and work in the United States for humanitarian reasons. Someone should tell Steve Scalise. Secretary Mayorkas' job is to protect America's homeland. He's the Homeland Security Secretary. When he comes before Congress, he testifies under oath that America's border is secure. That's a flat-out lie. The Secretary of Homeland Security is the person in charge of the border. He can secure the border today. He's chosen not to. The articles of impeachment against Secretary Mayorkas are now headed to the House floor for a vote as early as next week. Joining me now is Brendan Buck, MSNBC political analyst and former press secretary to former House Speaker John Boehner. Brendan, is um, the impeachment of Alejandro Mayorkas the big winner for Republicans in 2024? (laughs) Well, they certainly think it is. And you know what? It may be. At least the issue of immigration has has proven to be a winner for Republicans. And I think that's why they have their foot to the gas here. Polls have consistently shown that voters blame Joe Biden more than they blame Republicans on this issue. And anything that they can do to put it in the spotlight, they probably think is good. But I, I think we're probably giving them too much credit to think there actually is a national political angle here. A lot of this is just pure base Republican politics. It's even just House conference politics, where there's been so much um, energy spent convincing people at home that the the administration is willfully allowing uh, immigrants into the country for whatever agenda. You you tell people that this problem has been going on for so long, they're eventually going to expect you to do something about it. Um, And and this is perhaps the easiest thing that they can grasp and do. Um, It certainly cheapens what impeachment is all about. Um, But a lot of times you got to remember a lot of House Republicans are, are really in their own universe. They're in their own heads. They think that they are solving these really important problems, whether or not the average voter looks at them and takes them seriously at all. Well, I mean, I think it's fair to mention here they may think they have a winner by impeaching Alejandro Mayorkas. But the reality is the thing that would potentially go much further towards solving the border crisis is the bipartisan immigration deal that's being scuttled by the Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump. I mean, do you think that Republicans don't pay a price for that as it concerns national interest in immigration? Yeah, they're obviously giving the the president a, a huge opportunity. I mean, look, this is what is so frustrating about this. We have an incredibly incredibly rare opportunity right now to actually do something about the border. And for if you're a Republican who's always rejected any of these compromises because Democrats have always insisted on things having to do with legalization, this is an opportunity where that's not even on the table. You really just get a stronger border policy. And this is the argument that Mitch McConnell has been making to to senators. And yet we're walking away from that. But it is very emblematic of what the House has become. We are putting this type of a theater in place of of solving actual problems. And where I think what I'm concerned is that no one does pay a political price anymore for not putting policy first. You are rewarded for theater. And that's what so much of the House has become. Look, in 2016, there was a somewhat similar effort to impeach the IRS commissioner. I don't know if you remember this, John Koskinen. The Freedom Caucus, the Freedom Caucus was trying to impeach him Um, because they were upset, you know, largely with the IRS and and some of the past actions. He wasn't even the commissioner at the time of some of the things that people were upset with. 
But we made the argument to members that this is not serious, that there are, that impeachment should mean something. And when this was brought up for a vote, over 100 members of the Republican conference voted with leadership to defeat it. We were a much more serious place just eight years ago when that took place. Um, it's a very different house now, and theater is rewarded. I, I, I don't know whether I'm getting too deep down the sort of conspiracy rabbit hole, but the fact that Mitch McConnell was so clear that they were going to punt on this in service to Trump really felt like a really kind of almost a backhanded disclosure. Do, do you think that was Mitch McConnell kind of, if you will, getting the last laugh? Well, McConnell obviously knows the politics better than anybody. Mitch McConnell was trying to find some way to send money to Ukraine. I mean, that's what this is all about for him. And I think he now realizes that he's he's exhausted everything that they, that they can do here. I mean, it's not surprising. You know, we've talked about this before. Immigration is the single hardest thing for us to be able to do. You leave Donald Trump aside. This was going to be very hard to do just because of the incentives of, of Republicans to, to 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 cater to that base again. Um, but Donald Trump walking into into this dicey of an issue basically guaranteed it wasn't going to happen. It, it, it's surprising that it took that long for McConnell to actually say that out loud. I'll say the only good thing to come of this is my um, my understanding of the history of uh, cabinet impeachments. And then it goes back to um, <laughs> William Belknap in 1876, back when impeachment was a serious thing pursued by House Republicans. Brendan Buck, my friend, thank you for your time tonight. Yeah, Good to see you. That is our show for tonight.